I suppose probably some have been wondering why we have been revisiting the sermons of John Wesley. And it's a lot more work than I like to do for a message. It's easier to write in my own voice than to try and understand his. What could a preacher from 1700s England have to say to the 21st century? And I'm not really sure. But I'm certain that when I was praying and seeking the Lord about our next sermon series, that to John Wesley's sermons is where I was pointed. And we have to at least admit, and we talked about this some at our administrative council meeting this last week, that Methodism is certainly facing a significant moment in history. Almost a life-defining moment. And it's not the first time, but it is happening again. Maybe in a purely practical sense, it's useful for us to return to the beginning of this movement, to hear again from its founder what it means to be a Methodist. With that said, though, I have found an additional blessing myself in reconsidering Wesley's messages. I'm finding myself challenged to read and to understand the scriptures in ways I had not considered before. And so this is a for instance. I've often read Jesus as a wisdom teacher who is placing ideals before us that we can strive for, that we can live into. But I've seen them more as ideals. As you'll hear in the message today, Wesley did not read Jesus that way. He read Jesus as almost a lawgiver. He took every word that Jesus said as Jesus said it, with the seriousness with which he said it. And he thought that our whole lives should be governed by the things that Jesus said. And we should take those things at face value. I think this is a perspective that's sorely lacking today, and it's been personally challenging for me to sit with someone who read the Bible that way and lived it out. In the message today, Wesley was trying to be deeply practical. Jesus taught that to be his disciple, one must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow Jesus. Wesley understood that call to be a call to a life of universal self-denial. And so he sought to explore, in the message we'll talk about today, what a life of self-denial would look like in every aspect of everyday life. Some of his examples are dated, but I've left them as they were because they are such a window into how Wesley was trying to make Scripture practical for the world in which he lived. And I hope that it will inspire your imagination as well. Now, just one comment, and I want to make this caveat so that you don't think when I speak in Wesley's voice that I'm 100% with him in all the ways he read everything. On some occasion, he gets a little too ascetic for me. And if you're not familiar with that term, think monks living in the desert and vows of poverty and chastity and having nothing. Think of that. That's asceticism. Sometimes Wesley's understanding of self-denial carries with it too much of the Greek philosophical tradition. The idea that earthly pleasures, all of them, are just bad or at least dangerous in and of themselves, and it's better to avoid them altogether. Now, I have to disagree with him there. We should recognize that when God created the heavens and the earth, God called the creation good. Do you remember that at the very beginning? He created the heavens and the earth. He didn't call just the spirits good, right? He called the whole thing good. So there's nothing inherently evil in the flesh or in our capacities for pleasure or for enjoyment or maybe even for pain or suffering. 
The scriptures do not teach that our mental capacities are superior to our bodily capabilities. I will say, though, that for his time, Wesley was remarkably balanced in the way he spoke of these things. But I would still caution us that self-denial is not simply a way of speaking of restraining all bodily desires or denying oneself pleasure to increase our contemplative abilities. That's, maybe they thought that then. I don't know. It's, it's not quite biblical. The Christian life is a balance of body and spirit, both submitted to God, enjoying what can be enjoyed in God's creation and avoiding what must be avoided. So those are my comments. But without further ado, let's listen to Wesley's sermon. He entitled it, The More Excellent Way. Begins with a quotation from 1 Corinthians 12, verse 31. But earnestly desire the greater gifts, and yet I'm going to show you a far better way. That's more updated language. In his, it was a more excellent way. In the preceding verses, the Apostle Paul has been speaking about the extraordinary gifts of the Holy Spirit such as healing the sick, prophesying, speaking in languages which the speaker had never learned, and the miraculous interpretation of languages. And Paul has said that these gifts of the Holy Spirit are desirable. In fact, Paul encouraged the Corinthians to seek after them, to desire them, at least the teachers among them, that they themselves might be useful to the body of believers and to non-Christians in their time. And yet, Paul has said, I'm going to show you a far better way. A far more desirable way than all of these extraordinary gifts put together. This far better way will not only lead you to happiness, both in this world and in the world to come, but it will bring you peace. Even if a person had all of these extraordinary gifts, they might find themselves to be miserable, both on earth and in eternity. It does not appear that the extraordinary gifts of the Holy Spirit were common in the church for more than two or three centuries. We seldom hear of them after that fatal period when the Roman Emperor Constantine called himself a Christian. This is in the 300s AD. And from an empty desire to promote the cause of Christianity, he heaped riches and power upon Christians in general and upon the Christian clergy in particular. From that time forward, these gifts seem to have ceased almost entirely And this was not because, as some have ignorantly assumed, because there was no more need of them since all people became Christians after that. This is a miserable mistake. Not even 5% of the world was even marginally Christian in the years that followed. The real cause of the cessation of the extraordinary gifts of the Spirit was that most people's love, the love of almost all Christians, had grown cold. Christians then had no more of the Spirit of Christ than non-Christians. When the Son of Man came to examine his church, he could hardly find faith on the earth. This was the real cause of the cessation of the extraordinary gifts of the Holy Spirit in the Christian church, because Christians had become non-Christians again, and had only a dead form of Christianity left. However, I don't want to speak today of the extraordinary gifts of the Holy Spirit. Today, I will speak of the ordinary gifts of the Holy Spirit, and these two we should earnestly desire in order to be more useful in our generation. We may desire the gift of convincing speech in order to probe the unbelieving heart 
along with the gift of persuasion, both to move the emotions and to enlighten the mind. We may want that. We may desire knowledge, both of the Word of God and of God's activities in the world. We may desire enough faith to allow us to do miraculous works. We may desire a clear ability to articulate or a pleasant sermon to preach, which is in submission to the will of God. We may desire any of these things or other gifts that would be useful wherever we are. But there is a far better way than any of these. This far better way is the way of love. The way of loving all human beings for God's sake. The way of humble, gentle, patient love. This is the far better way that Paul has described so clearly in the rest of this chapter. And without this love, Paul has assured us that all eloquence, all knowledge, all faith, all works, and all sufferings are of no more value in the sight of God than a series of loud, annoying bangs and contribute nothing at all to our salvation. Without love, all we know, all we believe, and all we do, and all we suffer will not benefit, benefit us at all on the day that we stand before Jesus and make an account for how we have lived in this world. But today I'd like to look at this text from a slightly different angle and point out a far better way in another sense. One ancient writer has observed that from the very beginning there have always been two orders of Christians. One order of Christian lives a law-abiding life, is obedient in all things, does not rebel against the customs or the expectations of the world, does many good works, abstains from obvious evils, and attends to the basic requirements of God. These Christians try to live in such a way that their consciences remain clean, but they don't work to improve themselves. In most things, there is no difference between them and their neighbors. The other order of Christian does not only avoid all kinds of evil, but they are eager for good works of every kind. They attend to all the basic requirements of God, but they also desire earnestly to have in themselves the attitude that was also in Christ Jesus. And they try sincerely to live in every way just as Jesus lived. In order to do this, they live lives of universal self-denial. They deny themselves daily of any pleasure that they do not believe will prepare them for finding their delight in God. They take up their crosses daily. As Jesus taught them, they strive, they agonize without ceasing to enter through the narrow door. And above all, they are willing to endure any agony or any pain that is necessary to arrive at the summit of Christian holiness, leaving the elementary teachings about the Christ to press on to maturity, to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that they may be filled to all the fullness of God. From my experience and my observations, Wesley was writing this in his 60s, from my experience and my observations over a long period of time, I'm inclined to believe that whoever finds redemption in the blood of Jesus, whoever is justified, our language would be whoever is saved, has the choice of walking in the higher or the lower path that I've just described. I believe that at, the mo at that moment, the Holy Spirit calls this person to the far better way and encourages them to walk in it to choose the narrowest path in the narrow way, to long for the heights and depths of holiness, to long to embody the full image of God. But if this person does not accept the Spirit's offer, they decline into the lower order of Christians, perhaps at first without realizing it. 
This person still walks in what might be considered a good way, serving God in some degree, and they will find mercy at the end of their earthly lives through the blood of the covenant. I would not want to extinguish a dimly burning wick. In other words, I would not want to discourage those who are serving God in a lower degree. But at the same time, I don't want them to remain as they are. I would encourage those on the lower road to come up higher. Without thundering hell and damnation in their ears, without condemning the lives they're currently living, without telling them that the way they're walking leads to destruction, I will try to point out to them what is, in every respect, a far better way. And please remember that I'm not claiming that all who do not walk on this higher road are on the road to hell. Even so, I am saying that those who walk on the lower road will not have as high a place in the new heavens and the new earth as they would have had had they chosen the better part. And will it be a minor loss to have fewer stars in your crown of glory? Will it be a small thing to have a lower place than you might have had in the kingdom of your father? Of course, there'll be no sorrow in the new heavens and the new earth. There, all tears will be wiped from our eyes. But if it were possible for grief to enter into that place, we would grieve at that irreparable loss. Irreparable then, but not now. Now, by the grace of God, we may still choose the far better way. Let's compare in a few particulars the far better way and the way in which most Christians walk. Let's begin at the beginning of the day, in the morning. Most Christians who, who no longer work for their living or who make their living with a flexible schedule wake up, particularly in the winter, at either nine, 8 or 9 in the morning after having slept for 8 or 9 or more hours. I don't believe any longer, though I did believe this 50 years ago, that all who indulge themselves in this way are walking on the road to destruction. But neither do I believe they are on the way to the new heavens and the new earth, denying themselves and taking up their crosses daily. I am certain there is a far better way to promote both mental and bodily health. Being now in my 60s, I've learned that healthy men require, on average, it's remarkable he comes to about what science has, uh, between six and seven hours of sleep, and healthy women often require a little more from seven to eight hours each day. In my experience, this amount of sleep is most advantageous to both the body and the spirit. This sleep schedule is preferable to any medication which I've taken, both for preventing and for resolving nervous disorders. It is therefore a far better way, in defiance of what is popular and customary, to take only as much sleep as experience proves our bodies require. This is indisputably most conducive to bodily and spiritual health. So why do so many people not adopt this schedule? Is it because it's difficult? No, with human strength maybe it's challenging for some, but all things are possible with God. And by God's grace, all things will be possible for you too. If you bring this matter to God in prayer continually, you will find that it's not only possible, but easy. Even more, it will be far easier to rise early consistently than to only do it once in a while. But of course, the routine must be started on the right end. If you want to wake up early, then you must go to sleep early. Impose it on yourself, except in extraordinary circumstances, to go to bed at a fixed time. Then the challenge of it will soon be over, but the advantage of it will remain forever. Many Christians pray in the morning when they awaken, and most of those probably use some form of prayer that they learned when they were eight or ten years old. 
Now, I'm not condemning those who pray in this way as mocking God, though many do, even though they've used the same prayer without variation for 20 or 30 years. But surely there is a far better way of ordering our private devotions. What if we were to follow the advice given by William Law in his book, A Call to Christians, showing the necessity of a devout and holy life? He encourages us to consider our outward and inward states and then to pray accordingly. For instance, suppose your outward state is prosperous. Suppose you're healthy, at ease, you have plenty, you're in good relationship with your family, you have good neighbors and good friends. If this is true, then your outward state calls for praise and thanksgiving to God. So pray that way. On the other hand, if you're in difficult circumstances, if God has given you much to be anxious about, if you're in poverty, if you're in need of basic necessities, if you're distressed, if you're at risk of harm, if you're suffering pain or sickness, then you're clearly called to pour out your heart before God in response to these circumstances. Similarly, you might pray in ways according to your inward state, that is your mental, emotional, or as we would say today, your psychological state. Do you feel weighed down? from either a sense of sin or because of recurrent temptations, then let your prayer include those things, whatever confessions, requests, or pleas that might help you in your distress. However, what if you're experiencing peace? What if you're rejoicing in God? What if you're rejoicing and recognizing the ways in which He is comforting you? Then you can say with the psalmist, You are my God, and I give thanks to you. You are my God, I exalt you. You may also, when you have time, add to your prayers a little reading and meditation, even a psalm of praise, the natural outflow of a thankful heart. You must certainly see that this is a far better way than you've used before. Most Christians, after praying, usually then get busy with the work they've been entrusted to do by their employer. Every person that has any desire to be a Christian will not fail to do this, since it is impossible for an idle person to be a good person. Laziness is inconsistent with Christianity. But how do you understand your worldly work? Do you work primarily to provide things for yourself and for your family? That's a good reason, but it does not go far enough. All people work for those reasons, religious and non-religious people alike. But a Christian may go further. Our goal in all the work we do is to please God. Not to do our own will, but to do the will of the one who has sent us into the world. To do the will of God on earth as the angels do it in the heavens. We work for eternity. We do not work for the food that perishes. This is the smallest part of our motives, but for the food that lasts for eternal life. Isn't this a far better way? And how do you do your work? I hope you work diligently. I hope that whatever your hand finds to do, you do it with all your might. I hope that you are fair in your work, giving to each person what they are due in every area of your life. And I hope that you're a merciful person, doing to every person what you would want them to do to you. All of this is good, but a Christian is called to go further, to add faithfulness to God to their fairness and to add heartfelt prayer to the work of their hands. Without these things, all a person's diligence and fairness only reveal her or him to be an honorable non-Christian. And there are many who claim to be Christians who go no farther than honorable non-Christians go. And in which spirit do you work? Do you work in the spirit of the world or in the spirit of Christ? 
My fear is that thousands of those who are considered to be good Christians don't even know what I'm asking when I ask that question. If we work in the spirit of Christ, we walk as Jesus walked in all we do from beginning to end. We do everything in the spirit of sacrifice, giving up our will to the will of God and continually aiming, not at ease or pleasure or riches, not at anything this temporary world can afford us, but only at the glory of God. Can anyone really deny that this is a far better way of doing our work in the world? And these material bodies in which we live in this world require constant care, or they'll return to the dust from which they were taken long before nature requires. To prevent this, we have to eat every day. Among heathens in the ancient past, it was common to set aside some of what they ate for their gods, even though, as the Apostle Paul has reminded us, their gods were only demons. A recent historian has written, this is about England in the 1700s, it seems there was once a similar custom to this in our own country, for we often see a gentleman before he sits down to dinner in his own house holding his hat in front of his face and oftentimes seeming to say something, though usually in a way that no one can tell what he said. Now what if, instead of superstitious rituals, every parent earnestly prayed and asked a blessing from God and gave him thanks before he or she sat down to eat any meal, whether it be breakfast, lunch, or supper? Wouldn't this be a far better way than to go through a meaningless ritual, which in the end is nothing more than a mockery both of God and of humans? And as to the amount of food we eat, Honorable people do not usually eat to excess, at least not so much as to make them sick, with food or intoxicated with drink. And most honorable people eat their food politely and with a measure of cheerfulness, which is said to be good for digestion. I hadn't heard that before, but I'm going to try laughing. So far, so good. And as long as they only take as much plain, cheap, wholesome food as their body requires for health of mind and body, no one should criticize this. For instance, I would not require anybody to take the advice of the poet George Herbert, who wrote, Take thy meat, think it dust, then eat a bit, and say with all, earth to earth I commit. This is too dreary, says Wesley. It does not fit with the cheerfulness that should be part of a Christian meal. Allow me to illustrate what I mean with a story. One day the king of France was out hunting with a company of people, and he outrode them. After looking for him for some time, they found him sitting in a cottage eating bread and cheese. When he saw them, he cried out, Where have I been living? I've never tasted food this good in all my life. Sire, said one of them, You never had so good a sauce before, because you have never been hungry. Now it's true that hunger makes things taste better, but there's a better sauce than hunger for Christians. Thankfulness. All food tastes better with thankfulness. And why shouldn't all your meals be seasoned with it? When we eat, we don't need to think about death. We should receive every morsel as a pledge of eternal life. By the food that you eat, your creator not only delays your dying, which is quite dreary, but he promises that very soon death will be swallowed up in victory. Mealtimes often include also conversation. After all, it's natural to refresh our minds as we refresh our bodies. How should Christians converse together? What topics should they discuss? If our conversations are harmless, if they don't include anything profane or immodest or untrue or unkind, if there's no gossiping, backbiting, or speaking evil about other people, 
then we have reason to thank God for keeping us from these evils. But there is more than this that's involved in conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. First, our conversations must be good. That is, the things we talk about should be good things. As the Apostle Paul has taught us in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. In other words, we should not discuss just anything that occurs to us or anything that might be occurring in the world around us. What have we to do with politics and government? It's not our business to fight the wars or to reform the state, unless a remarkable event requires us to comment on the justice or the mercy of God. Of course, sometimes we have to speak of worldly things, otherwise we might as well leave the world. But we should do this only when absolutely necessary, and then we should quickly return to better subjects. Secondly, Paul continued in Ephesians by saying, But if there is any good word for edification according to the need of the moment, say that, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Therefore, our conversation should be deliberately designed to strengthen or build up both us and our hearers, either in faith or in love or in holiness. Thirdly, we must ensure that our conversation is not only interesting or entertaining, but that it in some way gives grace to those who hear. Now isn't this a far better way of conversing than simply by trying to not offend anybody? So far we've discussed far better ways both of governing our conversations and of doing our work in the world. But we can't always be working. Both our bodies and our minds require some relaxation. We need intervals of rest from work. I will have to speak very bluntly about this because it's a subject which many have misunderstood. And I will say, at this point in the sermon, I realized how Wesleyan my grandmother was. Because he's very passive-aggressive, and so was she. (laughs) Wesley continues, Leisure activities are quite varied. There are sporting activities like hunting, shooting, and fishing. Some activities are more social, such as races or costume parties or movies or plays, dances, concerts... Others are more private, such as playing cards or reading. Some activities which used to be popular are not any longer. For instance, noble men and women rarely engage in hawking anymore. You can look that up yourself. And the rest of us rarely watch people fight each other with swords, sticks, or staffs. He didn't know about the WWE or Ultimate Fighter, apparently. We no longer use dogs to attack bears or bulls for sport. I didn't know they ever did that. And if it were not because of a few wealthy investors, cockfighting would not be practiced in England at all anymore. Wesley says, I don't want to say any more about these foul remains of barbarity than that they are an offense not only to the Christian religion, but to the very nature of what it means to be human. Oh, if that's all you're going to say, that's plenty. Of course, I'd not condemn sporting activities in the same way. If one has nothing better to do, then feel free to run foxes and rabbits out of breath. I don't want to comment on horse races either, unless someone wants to try to debate the issue. When it comes to movies or plays, I don't personally allow myself to watch dramatic plays or movies. I can't watch them with a clear conscience, at least not in an English theater, given all the profanity and lustful and sinful behaviors that are routinely featured there. But maybe others can. But my grandmother was Wesley. (laughs) I can hear her saying that. I can't say very much about balls or formal parties, which even though they are generally more upstanding than costume parties, tend to have the same general spirit. So certainly have all public venues, which include dancing. This is not surprising, given the way dancing is done today. In the ancient past, men and women never danced together, but always in separate rooms. 
This was the way dancing was done in ancient Greece and for a long time in Rome. In both these societies, men and women would only have danced together in the course of engaging in prostitution. When it comes to playing cards, I feel the same way as I do about seeing plays or movies. I can't do it myself with a clear conscience, but I don't pass judgment on anyone who feels differently. I leave that decision between them and God since they need to answer to him, not to me, for their decisions. Again, that's my grandmother. You just heard her. That was it. But even if all the activities, this is the real punch, that I've just discussed, even if those were all innocent diversions, for those of us who love and fear God, aren't there far better ways of spending our free time? If people of strong character want to spend their free time outdoors, then they could consider working in their yards or planting and maintaining gardens, or they could visit and talk with the wiser of their neighbors, or even better, they could visit the sick, the poor, the widows, and the fatherless. If they wanted to spend their free time inside, they could read meaningful books on history or religious writings or books on nature. They could learn to play a musical instrument or stretch themselves by doing activities to challenge and strengthen their minds. But more than all this, when we've learned how to pray, we're thankful that Bob is going to teach a class on this this summer. When we've learned how to pray and converse with God, we will find that as the air fills the sky, so prayer will be part of everything that we do then we'll be able to say that we are aware of God's presence in every moment of every day. I want to consider one more subject. That is the use of money. He didn't leave anything out, did he? How do most Christians use money, and is there a far better way? Many Christians usually set apart some of their yearly income for charitable uses. I've known a few people who said, like Zacchaeus, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I am giving to the poor. Oh, how I pray to God that he would multiply these sorts of people on earth. But even though few make this kind of commitment, there are thousands who give large amounts of money to the poor each year, especially in response to a tragedy or a crisis. I praise God for all who respond in this way. May they never grow weary of doing good. May God restore what they have given sevenfold. But still, I want to show you a far better way. Each of us should consider ourselves as a person into whose hands God has entrusted a part of his wealth, which is to be used according to his direction. And God's direction is that each of us should consider ourselves as only one of a number of impoverished people who are to be cared for out of the portion of his wealth that he has entrusted to us. You have two advantages over the others who are to be cared for out of the wealth that's been entrusted to you. First, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Second, you are to care for yourself first and others second. This is how Christians are to see both themselves and others. But to be even more candid, if you have no family, then after you have provided for yourself, give away everything that remains. So that each Christmas your accounts may clear and wind your bottom round the year. This was the practice of all the young people at Oxford who were called Methodists. Did you know that? I didn't know that. For example, one of them earned 30 pounds a year, which is equivalent to about $6,500 today. Man, you could live on less than. Um, he lived on 28 and gave away two. Three years later, he made 90 pounds. He still lived on 28 and gave away 62. The next year, he made 120 pounds. He still lived on 28 and gave away 92 to the poor. Isn't this a far better way? Secondly, if you have a family, seriously consider in prayer with God how much each member of the family truly needs in order to have what is necessary for life and for godliness. 
and in general do not allow them to have less than this, but also do not allow them to have much more than you allow yourself. Thirdly, having done this, commit yourself to not raising your standard of living. I charge you in the name of God, do not increase your standard of living. As more income comes daily or yearly than you need, let it go. Otherwise, you are laying up for yourself treasure on earth. And this our Lord Jesus forbid us to do, just as he forbid murder and adultery. By storing up treasure on earth, therefore, we are storing up wrath for ourselves on the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. But suppose that storing up treasure on earth were not forbidden by Jesus. How could we find it wise to spend money in a way which God may possibly forgive, instead of spending it in a way which God will most certainly reward? We will not receive any reward in heaven for what we save up. We will only receive a reward in heaven for what we give away. Every dollar we put into an earthly savings account is lost. It bears no interest in heaven. But every dollar we give to the poor is put into the bank of heaven, and it will bring glorious interest which will accumulate throughout all of eternity. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let the wise person decide today at this hour and moment, by God's help, to choose in all ways the far better way. And let him faithfully walk in it, in sleep, prayer, work, food, conversation, and leisure, and particularly with regard to the use of money. This one thing I'll do. I will store up in heaven. I will give to God the things that are God's. I will give him all my goods and all my heart. And that's the end of Wesley's message, but I want to follow up with something he couldn't have said. Did you know that he died poor? He died without a pound in the bank. He did exactly as he said he would do. He gave it all away. He died absolutely broke, having given everything he had earned away to the poor. So at the very least we could say, Wesley was a man of his word. May we hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches today.